0: This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And the Wall Street Journal isn't just for business readers, folks. It's America's Journal. Pick it up. And once again, we're going to hear from their regular contributor and our resident doctor on the show, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And here's Dr. Ely sharing his moving story, What I Learned from a dying patient I'm to live you now. But i
1: miss you, i had a patient recently whose death was particularly harrowing 39 years old phd Scientist, Brilliant. She was sent to the ICU team as a fascinoma, meaning a person with a constellation of problems the doctors couldn't figure out. This woman had been physically fine until two months earlier, and now she was growing progressively short of breath, had a little blood in her urine, and had pain in her toes, which were turning blue and red in the cold. Imaging showed that she had a growth on her aortic valve and that sections of her kidneys were dying. The doctors at the outside hospital had diagnosed her with blood clots in her lungs and started her on a blood thinner, but her condition kept worsening. As the day progressed, we started all the needed tests and interventions to help sleuth out the problems and fix them. Hours into my periodic conversations with her and her mother and sister, her mother mentioned that my patient was agnostic. I realized that up to that point, perhaps because of the sheer rapidity of the way things were unfolding, I had neglected to take a spiritual history. Since I teach medical students and residents in physical diagnosis class about the importance of taking a spiritual history, you'd think that I wouldn't fall prey to this oversight, but I had. The literature shows that most patients want to be asked about their spiritual beliefs or non-beliefs, and that many think it rude if healthcare professionals don't consider this important aspect of their well-being. The question should be asked out of respect and in a non-judgmental manner. Thus, I said to her, Do you have any spiritual values that you want me to know about that might influence your medical decisions? We'll get to her answer in a minute. Within 24 hours of our meeting, the patient had been checked with an array of blood tests and imaging studies. And there it was. The biopsy showed angry cells with too much nuclear size for healthy cytoplasm and prominent nucleoli, cancer. It was everywhere then. It became a whirlwind because she got shorter of breath by the hour as the cancer and fluid literally filled up her lungs. We went from her arrival in the hope of figuring out what was wrong and seeking a cure, talking about how when she got back to her lab and students, she'd resume where she'd left off, To the depths of despair. The patient's conversations with her sister were difficult, to say the least, and at times they both got weak. Eventually, they affirmed that they had to pave a way to prevent my patient's further suffering. With her mother, however, it was much worse. She looked at me through tears and fear and screamed, this is not fair. Over and over, her sister began printing off her will from an iPad and having things notarized. It was surreal. I won't forget my patient's look of shock and surprise, as if she'd heard me wrong. When I told her that the cells we'd seen under the microscope were cancerous and that the cancer had already spread throughout her body. Only eight hours after we'd told her that she had this incurable illness and that our hope, which at the time seemed plausible, was to get her off the ventilator so she could talk to her family, she stopped breathing, and died quietly, without any apparent awareness of suffering. Throughout the day, I had tried to be diligent about ensuring that she was able to spend time with her mother and sister. The initial challenge was to use a specific approach towards sedation that balanced her comfort and her clarity of mind so that she could really engage with the family. My last memory of this young scientist is that of her breathing, unconscious, and unaware of her surroundings. At this point, she was newly comatose on the sedation and painkillers as we removed the breathing tube and ventilator. I urged her family, nevertheless, tell her what you want her to know. It helps families to have no regrets in the days that follow. The story is many things, and to you it no doubt means something different than it does to me. As this woman's physician, I find that one of the most enduring aspects of the story was the palpable oneness I felt with her, and in knowing how in sync we were with everything, body and mind. There was an unusually tight connection, and I sensed that we both knew it. Since antiquity, the greats such as Plato and Aristotle have taught us the concept of body, mind and spirit as the fullness of existence, a triad still embraced by many today. My patient and I were in tune after talking about those first two, and then when I took her spiritual history, she perceived that our beliefs diverged. She affirmed what her mother had told me. Yes, I'm agnostic, and it's okay that we differ on that. I nodded and was left to wonder how and why, without having talked about this earlier, she had both understood that we differed in this third piece of the triad and thought it important to offer me reassurance. An autopsy will answer many things, like what was growing on her heart valve and the source of her cancer which we think was bowel, pancreatic, or ovarian. But no physical finding, microscopic sighting, or laboratory test is going to help me learn any more about her spiritual side. I remember her loving manner and her inquisitiveness about life. I know that she was thinking of her estranged father, her students, and her nieces whom she'd never see again. She wasn't sure about the existence of the divine, but her courage, Daring to face what was happening, despite not wanting to hear the worst possible news, utterly confirmed the human spirit. She revealed the connectedness we have in all of our imperfect, vulnerable lives, and I can still feel it now.
0: And again, that's Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He writes often for the Wall Street Journal and contributes here at Our American Stories, beautiful stories like that. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories and you're about to hear an incredible story of hope and redemption and you're going to meet a remarkable lady named Harmony Dust Grillo from a seemingly hopeless life in the commercial sex industry we will learn of Harmony's transformation to a new and purposeful place a place that allows her to help others who've taken similar wrong turns in life and show them a different life. Here's Madison to bring you the story.
2: You might think that it would be crazy that an intelligent, beautiful, and driven girl would enter the sex industry. It might make a little more sense if we heard a bit about her childhood.
3: I was raised in a pretty violent neighborhood in a really chaotic home. In the neighborhood I grew up in, Domino's wouldn't deliver a pizza after dark And the police actually wouldn't even come to my house after dark. My mother and my stepdad had a very tumultuous relationship. So there was a lot of screaming and fighting and yelling. And I also was sexually abused throughout my life by multiple people, both men and women, and raped. I wrote my first suicide note when I was eight years old. Um, One of my first attempts was around 12. And I figured it was just a matter of like, finding the right method one of my abusers was my mother's boyfriend and at that time i was 13 and i finally started standing up for myself a little bit more and getting a little feisty and hormonal as teenagers do and so i actually ran away from home to get away from the situation and my mom called me and said well, okay harmony you can come home it'll be fine he's gone he, he left and i came home and she actually followed him to canada and left my brother and I with $20 and a book of food stamps. And the food stamps and the $20 ran out very quickly. And I remember I would buy tortillas and butter because it was the cheapest thing that I could get in my neighborhood. But once the money was gone, I started stealing from the liquor store to support my brother and I. And I remember, you know, every time I did it, I felt really afraid that I was going to get caught and mostly because I was afraid of what would happen to my brother if I got arrested and where would he go. So I would actually have him stand outside on the corner and just told him, if anything happens, if anything goes wrong, you just run home as fast as you can. And it was that summer that I became involved with an older boy in my neighborhood. He would come around and buy my brother and I food so that we didn't have to steal it. and. He would make me feel protected in the neighborhood I was in and tell me, you know, I've got your back. I'll take care of you. I'm, I'm looking out for you. I'll protect you. And really, that's all I ever wanted from a man was to feel protected and to feel provided for. And so he kind of filled that void that I had. And what ended up happening is I formed a very deep attachment to him. And I really developed this kind of idea that I couldn't survive without him. And in some ways that summer, I I really did need him to survive, but the relationship became physically and emotionally abusive. He was my exploiter and essentially my pimp. That relationship led me to working in the sex industry at the age of 19 as a stripper. And every night came home, gave him all my money. And he actually started using me to recruit other women from strip club to work for him as well. And they were giving him their money. And I remember my first night showing up to the shift at the strip club I walked up to the DJ booth and I'll never forget he said what's your name and I said Harmony and he turned around and started writing my name Harmony in dry erase on the whiteboard behind him because that's where they put the list of girls that were working that night and seeing it in black and white like that really freaked me out and I remember saying take it down erase it I'll be Monique And really from that moment developed this persona that was Monique and Monique wasn't a real person. She was a lie and really it was a mask that helped me to deal and survive in that environment and separate what I was doing from who I am. At least it felt that way. But she wasn't a real person. She just was a compilation of other people's fantasies. Monique was whoever the customer wanted Monique to be. And the problem with that is that over time, I really began to lose sight of who Harmony was. There's just really this stripping of who you are and the boundaries that you get to have as a human being. But, you know, it's one of the things I think, creating an alter ego type thing that helps us as women who are in those situations cope and survive but it also perpetuates the lie because if a guy were to walk in the club and say, hey, do you like being here? Do you like what you do? Monique would say, yes, of course, I make great money and I get exercise. And nobody cared about who Harmony was or my hopes and dreams and wants and needs and feelings because my job was to be what other people wanted me to be and to not have wants of my own. The thing is, is that a lot of women, up to 90% of us, have a history of childhood sexual abuse, those of us that end up in the commercial sex industry. And that's not a coincidence. When a person is victimized, there's an experience of an extreme sense of powerlessness over your own body. And in that moment, being victimized in those moments, you don't get to say what happens to you. You don't get to have boundaries or stand up for yourself because you're powerless in those situations. My history of sexual abuse taught me to be comfortable with not having boundaries with my body, and um, it also made me feel comfortable with being sexualized and objectified, and those are pretty much job requirements, and there was a little bit of a void in me that sometimes the customers filled as well. Even in the relationship I had with the exploiter, it was all based on codependency and not having boundaries, and I stayed. I stayed because I didn't think I was worth more and every negative thing he said about me actually just validated what i already believed to be true about myself and i stayed also because that's all i ever saw modeled in relationships was um abuse. And so it was normal to me. And I honestly thought all men were like that. There were times I would even think about leaving him, but I would think, what's the point? Because at least I know what sets him off. At least I know what makes him tick and I can kind of manage and navigate this abusive situation. But if I leave him, who knows who I'm going to end up with. I was in complete denial and was just so deceived and confused and hopeless and felt completely trapped. The big catalyst for change in my life began with a friendship. I met a girl, and her friendship changed my life. She loved me unconditionally. She never judged me. I found out that she was a Christian, and I actually was surprised because I would have expected her to be maybe judgmental based on my experiences and the the stories my mom told me about her being discriminated against by Christians growing up. And, you know, she grew up on army bases and was the only non-Christian family there. And the other children weren't allowed to play with her. So I grew up just thinking Christians are judgmental and not safe people. So I was really surprised that this person was a Christian because she was so loving and kind. And I just felt like I couldn't lie to her. And so I was honest with her about the circumstances in my life. I did tell her I was a stripper and to my surprise that didn't push her away. But also I appreciated that her friendship with me was not contingent on me going to church with her. She would take me to coffee and to ice cream and really just showed genuine care for me as a human being. And it's because of that, that I finally did feel safe enough and comfortable enough to go to church with her. And church was the last place I wanted to go. I thought if there is a God and I am not convinced there is, I didn't think he would want anything to do with someone like me. But I eventually took her up on her offer after months and months and months and went to church. And I just sensed that I was home. And I really felt like I didn't know much, but I knew that I wanted to be back there when the doors were open.
2: Although Harmony was experiencing new beginnings,
3: The real change in her life did not occur overnight. I was still working at the strip club. I was still in the abusive relationship. And one thing I appreciate about that friend is that she never said, "Okay, listen, now that you're in church, you need to stop cussing, get off the pole, break up with a boyfriend, put on some clothes. Like, here are the things you need to do to be a Christian. She just really gave space for the Holy Spirit to do a work in my heart that eventually led to change in my life. And I really needed that because if she had started to try to control my behavior, then I really think it would have pushed me away. But she understood that Christianity and faith in Jesus is not about behavior modification, it's about heart transformation, and that leads to life change.
0: And you're listening to Harmony Dust Grillo, grows up in a neighborhood where Domino's doesn't deliver. The first suicide note at the age of eight, the first attempt, At the age of 12, sexually abused by men and women, mom abandons her. She ends up with a basically a pimp who abuses her, ends up in the commercial sex industry as a stripper, 90% of whom the women in that business are sexually abused. They're victims. And she said, I stayed with the pimp and in life because I didn't think I was worth more. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Harmony Dust Grillo's story, here on Our American Stories. return to our american stories and the story of harmony dust grillo and here again is madison to continue with this remarkable story
2: after finding a church home where she felt accepted harmony finally decided it was time to end her abusive relationship with her exploiter and one day she built up the courage to try and get her car back from him he had been driving it and keeping it from her for a while she asked the youth pastor at her new church if he would come along with her.
3: The youth pastor had no idea what he was getting into. I just said, hey, can you come help me get my car back for my boyfriend? And he was like, oh, sure. And we pull up and, you know, it's not a good neighborhood. And the youth pastor is kind of looking around like, what is going on? And my ex-boyfriend is like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm here to get my car back. And He grabbed me and he said, no, you're not. And he threw me against the car. And then he said, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to get my GAT and I'm going to kill you GAT, meaning his gun, and he's going to kill me. And to me, this whole interaction was very normal. The youth pastor was freaking out. So I'm standing there like, I need to get my car back. And the youth pastor is like, we need to go. And so finally convinced me to get in the car and leave. And he called the police. And... I'll never forget there was a female officer and she said, here, I want you to take this. And she was handing me a domestic violence brochure. And I said, I don't need that. And she was like, I I want you to take this. And I said, I don't need that. And she set it down on my coffee table. And I remember when she left, I picked that brochure up and I had been in a seven year long abusive relationship, but it wasn't until that moment that I really Realized that it was an abusive relationship because I was in such a deep level of denial. You know, you see the billboards of domestic violence victims and they all have black eyes. And I'm like, he never hits me in the face and I've never had a black eye. And therefore, <laughs> this is not domestic violence. But it wasn't until that moment that I really realized and I just lived in denial all of those years about it. I didn't see him as my exploiter, I didn't see him as a pimp, I saw him as the love of my life, crazy enough. Mm-hmm. Basically, all of that left me with this very strong desire to feel a sense of safety that I never had. And so my life did change, and it was from that place of just revelation. And so I remember for weeks on end, I'm hearing the pastor talk about the fact that I was created with a purpose and I remember being in the strip club one night and looking around and realizing if I was truly created with a purpose this cannot be it so it was from that kind of place that I was able to walk away from the industry and walk away from the boyfriend and just really began on uh, this healing journey part of that journey was facing
2: her past Harmony encountered many troubled people while working at the strip club but along the way she happened to meet one man who was different a man in his 80s who seemed to be just as lonely as she was.
3: He was super sweet, very respectful and gentlemanly man. In fact, you know, he would pay for table dances and that sort of thing. But honestly, that's not why he was there. He was there really mostly for conversation. In fact, sometimes when I would dance, he, I watched him avert his eyes. And he just was more interested in resuming whatever conversation we had. And he was a widow. His wife died and they had been married almost 50 years and he missed her terribly. And he would come into the club. It started out one night a week, two nights a week. By the end, it was like three or four nights a week. And, you know, spend a few hundred dollars each time just for my company. And and I remember thinking if I had met him under different circumstances, he was such a sweet and kind man that what would it look like if he and my grandmother could offer each other companionship? When I finally quit stripping, he was really the only person that I felt, not that I owed an explanation to, but I didn't want to just disappear. I wanted to let him know what was happening and that I was, I was leaving because I know that our relationship, however odd and strange it was, was a big part of his life. And I called his house, someone else answered the phone. I ended up finding out that he was in the hospital that in that period of time that I quit, he just so happened to have a heart attack. And so, I decided to go and visit him in the hospital to say a proper goodbye. I kind of felt like it was the right thing to do. He was not well. I could tell he was not well. And you know, I sat with him and I told him that I was leaving the industry and he was like, "Good for you, sweetie." And he was really supportive and kind and I didn't know what I could give him, but I just offered to pray with him. And at the end of the day, he wanted to have a relationship with Jesus. So I was able to pray with him that day and say an official goodbye. And it's not like I experienced that a lot with the men where I experienced them as just really kind people, but um, with him, it was different. Eventually, I got to a point where I realized that all the pain that I had gone through that there could be purpose in it, and that it wasn't just about me. And I found myself sitting across the street from the strip club where I used to work, and was praying for the women, and then realized, like, okay, it's great to pray, but I have to do something, because there are women in there that are feeling as trapped as I did. And so I started writing handwritten notes to give to them, to put on their cars, because I knew where they parked. The very first note that I left on the car of a woman at the strip club where I used to work said something to the effect of, hi, my name is Harmony. I used to work here too, and I just want to let you know that you're not alone, and there's a place for you. And then it was really in that moment that the whole vision of Treasures was
2: birthed. Treasures is an outreach group that supports women who are working in the sex industry, that meets these women where they are, and helps to provide them with a way out if they want it. This effort is led by women who were previously in the same situation.
3: So that's what I've been doing for the past 15 years. It's just amazing because all of that is a result of me being willing to let God use my story and the pain from my past to reach and help other people. Over
2: the years, Harmony has written a lot of cards. One response came from a woman who had had many doors shut in her face. She asked Harmony for guidance in where she should turn next.
3: I encouraged her to connect with the local church because that was a really positive experience for me and I naively hoped and thought that it would be the same for her to get some community wrapped around her. And she showed up at the church and she, you know, went to the altar to get prayer and it happened to be the pastor's wife. And she told the pastor's wife, you know, I'm a single mom, I've been working as a prostitute. She had been trafficked, but was now an adult who was working on her own as a prostitute. And the pastor's wife said, I really wish you weren't telling me this, this is making me very uncomfortable. And she was really giving the benefit of the doubt to the church. So she actually went to the church with her child the next week. And when she showed up to check her child into children's ministry, they said, you and your child are not welcome here. If the pastor's wife or anyone in that congregation truly understood the kind of situation that led her into those circumstances, they could have responded with compassion and maybe been more helpful. And so I'm really passionate about training and educating and equipping people Um, so that they can respond in ways that are helpful and loving and kind. And we have seen some incredible stories and I really am at a place in my life where I never wanna go through all the things that I've been through again, ever, ever. I never wanna be abused again. I never want to experience all that trauma again. But what I can confidently say is that I wouldn't trade any of it for the person that I've become in the process all things really can work together for good if we let them if we're willing to surrender to that process so I got to a point where I realized that all the pain that I had gone through that there could be purpose in it
0: and great job to Madison for bringing us that story and to learn more about what Harmony and her team do at Treasures or to get involved with this great outreach program visit IamATreasure.com She'd lived in denial all that time, didn't see her pimp as an abuser, actually saw him as the love of her life. I keep thinking about that scene with the old man in the hospital, how beautiful that was. All the pain I'd gone through, there was a purpose in it, she said. It isn't all about me. Soon she was leaving notes on cars around the very strip joint she worked at. A beautiful story about love, redemption, about God and faith. Harmony Dust Grillo's story here on Our American Stories. Our American stories. And now we bring you the story of an American artist whose fuzzy afro and calming voice grace TV sets not only from coast to coast, but around the world from Muncie, Indiana. Here's Jesse Edwards with our look into the life of Bob Ross.
4: If you mention the name Bob Ross around a baby boomer, they're likely to have fond memories. Growing up, listening to his soothing voice while watching his educational painting show. Despite the fact that he died over 20 years ago, if you mention Bob Ross to a teenager, they're likely to be just as knowledgeable. Then there's everybody else in between who doesn't know Bob Ross because you're either not old enough to remember him the first time around or young enough to know about his recent viral comeback. Hello, I'm Bob Ross
5: and I'd like to welcome you to the 21st joy of painting series if this is your first time with us let me extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your little paint brushes and some paints and And paint along with us each show.
4: And who hasn't sat around on a lazy weekend afternoon and watched the great Bob Ross do his thing on public television?
5: Or just just drag up the old easy chair and enjoy a relaxing half hour as we play some of nature's masterpieces on canvas. The
4: mild-mannered, soft-spoken painter had a special ability to put his viewers into a trance-like state as we watched him paint his happy little trees into his beautiful landscapes. Now then,
5: let's decide. Maybe there's a happy tree... Evergreen tree. He lives right there. Start with just touching the canvas. Use just the corner of the brush, just the corner, and begin pushing, making the bristles bend slightly downward. See there? Look at that, isn't that a nice little tree? And he lives right here in this brush. All you have to do is
4: sort of push him out. Bob Ross created and starred in The Joy of Painting on PBS where he taught viewers how to paint like he did using the wet-on-wet technique. His process involved painting his entire canvas in white before he laid down the other oil paints. While some stuffy classically trained artists would say this is cheating, it didn't matter to Bob or anyone in his audience for that matter.
5: We'll go right up to the top of the canvas and we'll start we'll just do some little X's, little crisscross strokes and we'll work all the way across the top. Now the color is continually mixing with the liquid white and it creates all those beautiful variations that we want. Let me put a little more color on the brush here.
4: And although Ross died of lymphoma at age 52 in 1995 on the 4th of July, he's just as famous now, if not more so, than he was at the peak of his career.
5: Here we go. Let's start at the top and work down. And that way our sky will get progressively lighter toward the horizon. And that's exactly what we're looking for. In a landscape, you want things to get lighter toward the horizon and darker as they can come away from the horizon.
4: His videos have millions of views on YouTube and has over 600,000 followers on Twitch where PBS regularly marathons episodes of The Joy of Painting. That
5: effect happens automatically. You really don't have to worry about it. It it just happens. And that truly is the joy of painting.
4: His soothing voice continues to calm people And his endless supply of inspirational quotes like, there are no mistakes, only happy accidents are more
5: relevant than ever. And see what happens. As you paint, you'll see all kind of things happening on your canvas. And very soon you learn to use all these beautiful little things that happen. We don't don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents.
4: One of the first things people noticed about Bob Ross was his trademark afro. But it might surprise some fans to learn that his hair was naturally straight. He chose to get a perm because he thought he would save money by not having to get haircuts. Yet, Ross later regretted the lush curly locks and wanted to change his hair back to its natural state. But by that point, his company had already included Ross's iconic fro for the company logo,
5: and there was no going back. Give him a shake. <laughs> and just beat the devil out of him. Sometimes those brushes get away and they go, soon, clean the other side of the room that's when you find out who your friends are.
4: Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, and dropped out of his freshman year of high school to work on construction with his father. In 1961, then 18-year-old Ross enlisted in the Air Force and was put into service as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the US Air Force Clinic at Ellison Air
5: Force Base in Alaska. I spent half my life in the military, and there I I had to live in somebody else's world all the time. Painting offered me freedom. I'd come home after all day of playing soldier And I'd paint a picture and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted it was clean it was sparkling shiny beautiful no pollution Nobody nobody upset everybody was happy in this world That may be how I made it through 20 years of military There we go Because I could find freedom on this canvas there's absolute freedom here. And I think we're all looking for freedom.
4: His time in Alaska undoubtedly influenced his later work. It was in Alaska where he saw snow and mountains for the first time, both of which were heavily featured in his paintings. If you've never been to Alaska,
5: you're to go see it. It's almost unreal. I was born and raised in Florida. and was, I was almost 20 years old before I ever saw snow. And my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam, he sent me up there in January. Thought that would be funny. (laughs) It was funny. I I got off the plane, the first thing I did was stepped on the ice and fell on my bottom, because I didn't know how to walk on ice. In Alaska, they have ice fog, and ice fog occurs normally when it's about 30 below or colder, and it covers everything, everything with frost, it is so beautiful. Trees look like they're in full foliage. It's so beautiful, and the light plays through it, and these, all these little ice-covered frosty things, they act like prisms, and they break up the light, and you see all colors in the trees. In the dead of winter, you can see just, oh, you have to go see it. I can't, can't explain it all to you. So pretty.
4: It's hard to believe that anyone could watch this maestro at his easel and not be tempted to pick up a paintbrush. But the truth is, most of Ross's audience didn't even paint. So why do people watch? Some people just tune in for Ross's welcoming persona and positive musings about life. Others tuned in because it helped lull them to sleep. A fact that Ross was well aware of. He didn't mind.
5: That's the name of the game. It's enjoying. You really ought to enjoy what you do in life if you do, then you'll do a good job. And I certainly enjoy what I'm doing. I spend half my life doing somebody else's thing. Painting should make you happy. It does nothing else. It should make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you're doing the wrong thing. Because it's fun. And if you can do things all of your life that make you happy, needless to say, you're going to be a happy person. And you know, when, when you buy your first tube of paint, you get an artist's license. And that license says you can do anything that makes you happy.
4: He tirelessly churned out three copies of every painting that appeared on The Joy of Painting. He kept the first painting off screen and used it as a reference as he worked on the copy that appeared on the show. The final painting was completed after the episode was shot. A photographer would take pictures of these third final copies and the images would appear in Ross's how-to
5: books. I want to get you to try being creative on canvas, just to take your time and and sit down have nothing in mind when you start. Just have a good feeling and be happy and and in love with life and your world and, and sit down and begin playing. And if you feel good about yourself and the world... It'll show in your painting, and all these little things will happen.
4: Bob Ross generously filmed 31 seasons of The Joy of Painting, but PBS didn't pay the artistic genius for a single episode. Instead, Ross used the show to market his brand. He made most of his money from his company, Bob Ross Inc., selling art supplies and instructional guides. The company also offered painting classes taught by artists trained in Ross's singular methods.
5: If you happen to get some of it down in here, who cares? We'll end up turning that into reflections we don't make mistakes we have happy accidents just don't worry about it learn how to use what happens
4: in addition to being the sleep inducing master that had the same effect on the brain as valium ross was an avid animal lover peapod the squirrel could be found chilling in ross's shirt pocket as he painted and sometimes ross would take a break from painting and bottle feed the squirrel for
5: his audience and this is how hard it is to get a little squirrel to eat That's all there is to it. Aren't they the most precious little characters you've ever seen?
4: This is surreal television.
5: Yeah. You could feed them ten times a day, and they'll always be just about this hungry. Hey, you know I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. Okay? All right. I'm going to set him right over here and let him finish lunch.
4: And since he created those three paintings for each episode of The Joy of Painting, he ended up with thousands of works over the course of his life somewhere around 30,000 paintings. And he was practically drowning in fan letters. His popularity and ambient-like side effects on viewers caused them to send him up to 200 letters every day. And on several occasions, when a regular fan would stop writing in, Bob Ross would actually call that fan just to see if they were okay. So what happened to all those masterpieces that Bob Ross painstakingly created? He donated them all to public television stations across the country so they can auction them off and keep the money. For Our
5: American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Hey, now we can wash the old brush. And if you've painted with me before, you know this is the fun part of this whole technique. We wash our brushes with odorless thinner, shake them off, <laughs> and just beat the devil out of them. And that's where you take all your hostilities and frustrations, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there we go to have to splash the cameraman one time so he, he doesn't feel neglected.
0: This is Our American Stories. By the way, nothing makes me happier than seeing my wife and my little girl, 13 years old, in front of the smart TV, painting together to whom? To old Bob Ross videos. Bob Ross's story, here on Our American Stories. Great job, as always, by Jesse. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your story. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. In 1938, German scientists learned the power of splitting an atom. And with that, they gained a huge head start in what was truly the first nuclear arms race. But instead of a stockpile, the race was to just get it right, and then maybe they could replicate the results. In the town that housed the bulk of the work of the Manhattan Project, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, there was a single photographer, Ed Westcott. This is the story that led to the end of World War II and the one man that photographed it all. Here's Arthur Richard Cook with the story.
6: In August of 1934, President Hindenburg of Germany died. Chancellor Hitler moved quickly to consolidate the office of president and chancellor and molded it into a new position as dictator. His new title was Führer. A national referendum weeks later was approved by 90% of the voters. Meanwhile, in Nashville, Tennessee, Ed Westcott's father, after saving for a year, bought 12-year-old Ed his first camera. They found a used mobile lunch wagon, which they renovated into a dark room. Family, friends, and neighbors could get film developed for 50 cents a roll. He was largely self-taught. He started working with portrait studios in Nashville while still a teenager. There were clues in East Tennessee in September of 1942. A press release published in newspapers said the military was building an ammunition testing range outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. This partially explained the condemnation of 58,000 acres by the government. The reports in newspapers were a total lie. Farmers who owned the land were totally in the dark. Surveying crews asked permission to be on their land for a few hours. In November, owners found a single piece of paper attached to the screen front door. Announcing that the owners of the land had three weeks to vacate the property. It was being confiscated by the federal government. Many of these families had farmed their land for generations. The farmhouses were bulldozed down in a matter of days after the eviction date. The ammunition testing range excuse was done on purpose. It discouraged squatters and it worked. The families viewed their farms as a personal Garden of Eden. The land provided for all their needs, both physically and spiritually. Most families never, ever got over the quick, harsh eviction. They were compensated for their land. But hundreds of farmers were looking for new farmland at the same time. Prices went through the roof. Many of the farmers ended up working at the industrial plants, which were built on their former land. Meanwhile, 160 miles to the west in Nashville, a 20-year-old man had a decision to make. Ed Westcott was a photographer for the Nashville office of the Army Corps of Engineers. The office was being closed. Ed was offered two options. He could transfer to the Alaskan Highway to document the construction of it or he could go to a new installation outside of Knoxville. Ed had spent all of his entirely too brief life in Tennessee. He had recently gotten married and had a newborn son. Knoxville it was. He accepted the job in November and would start in January of 1943. His employee number was 29. Little did he know that in less than three years he would create the most important photographic archive of 20th century American history. Ed said there wasn't much going on when he reported to work. Putting in roads and rail lines was the first order of business. Ed said if this was a war project, it wasn't much of a project. Ed dove into his work. From January 1943 until the end of the war in August of 1945, he took somewhere between 15,000 to 20,000 photographs. In an era where everyone has a camera on their cell phone, that doesn't sound like much. 16 to 21 photographs every single day. But it was a different time. The cameras were heavy and often he needed heavy tripods to mount his camera on. During the war, Ed had a 4x5 speed graphic, which used roll film with six exposures on each roll. And then he had an 8x10 Deerdorfer, which used a single sheet of film for each photograph. If he was shooting inside, he had to use bulky floodlights, which took a long time to set up, and oftentimes for just a single shot. And at the end of the day, he had to go back to his darkroom and develop the day's film and print proof sheets. Then there might be a dance to shoot later that night. Cameras were banned in the secret city, His was the only camera in a town of 75,000, and for a guy with ambition, his side hustle as a photographer was almost a full-time job on its own. There were many weddings each weekend. The fastest-growing department at the hospital was the maternity ward. If you needed photos of your firstborn, Ed was the man.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue this remarkable story of a man, a town, and a time. And my goodness, we all have these points in our life, a pivot point, where he could have gone to Alaska or stayed in Knoxville. And he didn't know which was which. But the choice to stay in Knoxville, well, it would change his life. And he captured a major part of American life, a fundamental part of the 20th century, the Manhattan Project in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And when we continue, Richard Cook will tell us the rest of Ed Westcott's story here on Our American Story. And we're back with our American stories and the story of the Manhattan Project, the perfecting of atomic weaponry and the building of a 75,000 person town in less than three years. We continue with Richard Cook.
6: The speed and scale of Oak Ridge was unlike anything the country had ever seen. From the time the farmers were evicted until the day Japan surrendered was a mere 1,020 days. This top secret installation went from cows grazing pasture land to the fifth largest city in the state and one of the largest industrial complexes in the history of mankind. Splitting an atom was an astonishing new energy source and it was fully realized in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. timing, both good and bad, can be a terribly random thing. In December of 1938, two scientists in Germany discovered a uranium atom could be split and release a massive amount of energy. Barely eight months later, Germany invaded Poland and World War II started. The first perception of atomic power by the world would be during a war. General Dick Groves ran the Manhattan Project. He was a no-nonsense, impatient taskmaster. His second in command was Colonel Ken Nichols. They were hired in September of 1942. Things happened quickly. They made the decision to step up the process to condemn 60,000 acres of farmland west of Knoxville, Tennessee. They also obtained from the War Production Board a AAA priority rating. It was the highest rating possible. There were shortages of thousands of materials during the war. The Manhattan Project would be first in line for anything and everything. Another objective was to borrow from the U.S. Treasury 14,000 tons of silver for the industrial plants in Oak Ridge. That is equal to the weight of 9,000 cars. And finally, they also contracted with a uranium mine owner in the Belgian Congo for 1,250 tons of high-quality uranium ore. Dick and Ken completed these four vitally important objectives during the first four days on the job. In 18 months, they built the fifth largest city in the state. During the peak, a home was completed every 30 minutes. There were over 6,000 massive industrial machines separating two isotopes of uranium. Oak Ridge devoured 10% more electricity than New York City during the war. New York had over 7.5 million residents. Oak Ridge? About 75,000. For safety reasons, workers lived miles from the industrial sites. These were new experimental processes creating a new type of uranium. There were worries an accident would be catastrophic. So, to ferry workers to and from the plants, they built the ninth largest bus system in the country. A bus arrived or departed from the main terminal every 60 seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Even with the industrial plants, the speed of construction was head spinning. The problems were huge. For every 2,000 pounds of raw uranium, there was only 14 pounds of the precious uranium-235. The plants were named S50, K25, and Y12. The names were total gibberish. They were created to make sure absolutely nothing was conveyed to the workers or the outside world about the purpose of these plants. Normally, after a theory is proved out in the laboratory, a prototype is built to see if the idea is scalable. There was no time for that. K-25 used a filter method. There was a 2% difference in the size of uranium-238 and the smaller uranium-235. A filter would have holes small enough that the larger 238 could not pass through it easily but the smaller 235 could. A filter the size of your thumbnail would have over 15 million holes in it. When they started building K25, the scientists had not developed a filter which worked. The scientists just kept grinding out possible solutions until they developed one which worked. Much of what happened in Oak Ridge was based mostly on blind faith. Why such a rush? Only people in the highest echelons of the military, government, and science knew the horrible secret which kept all of them awake at night. Hitler had his own atomic weapons program. We knew almost nothing about it, but what was known was nightmarish. Hitler had a two-year head start. This was the original arms race. If Hitler got the weapon first, London would be gone. Moscow most likely too. If Hitler could get an airfield in Greenland, the entire east coast of the United States would be under threat. The resulting carnage would make the Holocaust look like a tiny blip on a moral radar screen. There were 75,000 workers in Oak Ridge. Only two to three hundred workers knew the purpose of the giant industrial site. But all the workers were highly motivated to end the war. They had family and friends dying in distant lands. The loss of American life during World War II would equal a 9-11 attack every five days for three and a half years. From the bottom up, workers were pleading with their bosses what can we do to end the killing? And from the top down the leaders did their own pleading faster, just work faster. Forces from the very top of the Manhattan Project and the fears of workers on the bottom rung of the labor pool all came together in Oak Ridge Tennessee unlike anywhere else in the nation. The officials kept the purpose of this place secret, almost against all odds, but there were two aspects of the top secret project which could not be hidden from the workers. One was the scale of what was going on. Nobody knew what it was, but it was the biggest effort they had ever seen in their young lives and it would be the biggest effort of their entire lives. The other aspect which could not be hidden was the speed of the effort. Everyone could see it was moving at a blistering pace. It seemed that housing and industrial plants were built almost overnight. These two elements, speed and scale, made the atmosphere electric throw into the equation youth and hormones, and it was the most amazing place in the country. The workers said it was the most exciting time of their lives and the scariest, too. The terror and carnage of war was the backdrop for everything.
0: And you've been listening to Richard Cook telling the story of Oak Ridge, Tennessee and the Manhattan Project, which, by the way, this should be... a A story that every school child knows, right? I mean, how how we don't know this story. Well, shame on all of us in the end. Uh, In a very short time, going from the eviction of farmers to the fifth largest city in a state, most of the people there, not knowing precisely what was going on, but my goodness, given the speed and scale, they knew it was something big and it had to do with the war, no doubt. So many of them losing family in the Endeavor over in the Pacific and soon in the European theater as well. Only two to 300 workers knew the purpose of the site. But my goodness, why the rush? Hitler was at it trying to develop his own atomic arsenal, and he had a two-year head start. And always put yourself in the position of not knowing what's going to happen, and we try and do that here on Our American Stories. The folks there, the folks fighting, the generals, the president had no idea what was going to happen, and that's why the rush and the speed. When we come back, we continue with Richard Cook, the story of the Manhattan Project, which of course means telling the story of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, here on Our American Stories. With Our American Stories and the story of the Manhattan Project, America's World War II project that was hellbent on beating Germany to the atomic bomb. But with the immense size and scale of this enterprise and all the people involved, how the heck did they keep it a secret? Back
6: to Richard Cook. You can't hide a town of 75,000 people. But what was going on out there? folks in Knoxville wondered. In other military plants, the narrative was straightforward. Thousands of rail cars of raw materials would be shipped in and thousands of jeeps or tanks would come out. Or the locals could see thousands of newly finished planes taking off. No mystery at all. Oak Ridge was different. Thousands of rail cars delivered raw materials And nothing, absolutely nothing, was coming out. Well, something was coming out, but nobody saw it. It was a single piece of gray-looking metal the size of a volleyball. It was made up of 90% uranium-235. Not thousands of volleyballs, but a single one. Over 75,000 workers were working desperately around the clock making a volleyball and if they could make one, they might be able to make a second one. In 2020 dollars, they would spend 14 billion dollars on a single 140 pound volleyball. Of course. If this was a Hollywood movie, the entire volleyball would be delivered to Los Alamos, New Mexico in a security convoy. There'd be 40 trucks and security guards with machine guns and American flags waving. It didn't happen that way though. As enough uranium was separated, a military officer dressed in a business suit would be given a sealed briefcase. Inside the lined case was two teacup sized containers with screw lids nestled in a special carrier. The officer would go to Knoxville get on a public train and travel to Chicago. At the train depot he would meet another officer dressed as a businessman He would take the briefcase and get on a train bound for Albuquerque, New Mexico and then he would drive to Los Alamos. The officer going to Chicago from Oak Ridge never knew where the briefcase was going and the other officer never knew where the briefcase came from. Sometimes workers went to Knoxville to shop or eat and they were trained how to answer questions from nosy natives. So, what are you making out there, anyway? Uh, about 85 cents an hour. Um, what do you do out there, anyway? I'm in project management. How many people work out there? Oh, about half of them. The obsession with secrecy and security was well founded. Officials were deeply concerned that the Germans would learn the extent of the American efforts and would double down on their own program. Or, more likely, the Germans would infiltrate Oak Ridge and steal industrial secrets about American methods so it could aid their own work. When all workers were hired in Oak Ridge, they went through an eight-hour orientation. Six hours of it was keep your mouth shut, don't talk about your work to anyone, including your spouse, you could be fired, and possibly go to prison for espionage. There were billboards everywhere in town which said shut up and do your job. Every six months There was a refresher course in case you couldn't get the message the other four times. Outgoing mail was opened, read, and portions were blacked out if necessary. One of the tragic unintended consequences of these dictates was that nobody kept diaries or journals. Workers were petrified that military police would find them if they searched their homes. Oral histories done decades after the war will be the only record of the memories of these ignored heroes. There was something very conflicted about working and living in Oak Ridge during the war. At work there was little to no job security. There were prohibitions, procedures, protocols, and security standards. Asking too many questions was a sure way to be fired. Of all the people who left the Manhattan Project, 40% of them were fired. But officials were greatly concerned that the workers would up and quit in droves. They were all strangers. Many of them were away from home and family for the first time. The secrecy graded some. All the rules at work put strains on others. Sometimes, co-workers simply disappeared. The mythology was that they were reassigned to a radar tracking station in Alaska you didn't dare ask about workers who disappeared it would bring you unwanted attention because of all these strains outside of work officials were determined to keep the workers happy so they wouldn't quit to the extent possible the workers were pampered movie theaters were packed dance halls were full because most of the workers were working rotating shifts each week. Athletic leagues competed around the clock. There was a symphony orchestra made up of volunteers. A playhouse was open which is still in operation today. If you wanted a special interest club for a hobby You would tell authorities and they would do the publicity. At one time, there were eight different orchid clubs. Ed Westcott created a vivid record of the social history of the town. He took thousands of pictures of the industrial plants. Honestly, these are photos only a scientist could love. A machine is a machine. But photos of folks living their lives was where Ed's talents really came to the fore. Those photos tell a human story, and Ed was a master at that part of the story.
0: And you've been listening to Richard Cook telling this remarkable story of a town that was built from scratch to compete with the Germans to be the first country to create a nuclear bomb. And my goodness, what a complicated place to live and what a complicated place to work. 40% of the people who left the Manhattan Project were fired. Secrecy, of course, putting strains on everybody and everything. You certainly didn't ask questions about workers who disappeared. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about life at this place, in this town, at this time, and hear more about Ed Westcott, And again, he's the man who took the pictures. There were no diaries. People were just too afraid to keep written records. And the oral histories we have are fine and fair, but nothing from the immediate time. But Mr. Westcott's pictures. When we come back, more of this remarkable story of a town, a time, a place, and a photographer. Here on Our American Stories. And we're back with our American stories and with the rest of the story of the Manhattan Project, the end of World War II, and Ed Westcott, the only man with a camera in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And these history stories, by the way, are always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life and all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And their Constitution 101 class, 10 hours worth the price of admission. I learned more watching that class, actually being in that class, than I did at three years of the University of Virginia School of Law. But let's go back to Richard Cook for the rest of this remarkable story.
6: There was a sense of expectation in the summer of 1945 among some of the Oak Ridge workers. Some workers got a heads up from their bosses. Something was afoot. Certainly, Ed Westcott knew something was up. It was toward the end of July of 1945, and he was instructed to print hundreds of copies of 18 of his photographs for press packets to be sent out to hundreds of newspapers across the country and even some foreign newspapers. He printed thousands of photographs. Ed had, in the last few months, pieced together what was happening in Oak Ridge. He went everywhere and saw almost everything. He wasn't totally sure, but he was mostly sure. In late August of 1945, he was sent rolls of film from military photographers in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was after Japan had surrendered. He was the only one allowed to develop the film and print the photographs. It took him three days. Armed guards were posted outside his darkroom door the entire time. President Truman gave a midday address to the nation On August 6th of 1945, he revealed that the United States had developed a devastating new weapon called an atomic bomb. They had dropped an atomic weapon on Hiroshima, Japan. It was equal to 15,000 tons of dynamite. Almost as an aside, Truman said the weapon had been developed in Pasco, Washington, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, outside of Knoxville. That is how almost all the workers learned about what they had been working on. Hugh Barnett joined the Manhattan Project while its offices were actually in Manhattan, in New York City. He learned the purpose of the Manhattan Project his first day at work. He moved to Oak Ridge in 1943. In the summer of 1945, it was obvious to Hugh that the project was closing in on the amount of uranium-238 they needed for a weapon. He carpooled out to K-25 each day with four other workers. They all knew the purpose of their work in Oak Ridge. August 14th was Hugh Barnett's 29th birthday. Hiroshima was bombed on August 6th and Nagasaki on August 9th. The entire country was on pins and needles expecting the surrender of the Japanese. Hugh was not celebrating his birthday that day But he was also on pins and needles, too. His wife had gone into labor with their first child. They were at the hospital. It was three blocks from the main town site called Jackson Square. There was no air conditioning, so the windows were open to fight the intense summer heat. Hugh's first son was born at 7 p.m. The commotion in the hospital room subsided, but Hugh and Shirley could hear distant cheering outside their room. Hugh wondered how word had spread so quickly about the birth of Lee. President Truman, in a nationwide radio address at 7 p.m., announced Japan had surrendered in that World War II after 65 million deaths, was finally over. There was great joy in the hospital room that night and in the entire nation too.
5: More than a million sing and dance in the streets in the biggest celebration the Windy City has ever seen. Joy is unconfined.
6: Meanwhile, in Jackson Square, three blocks away, Ed Westcott was taking photos of Oak Ridgers celebrating the ending of the war. There is a famous photograph of a huge crowd celebrating, looking directly at Ed, who was standing in the bed of a truck. Many held up the Knoxville newspaper with a half-page headline which shouted out, WAR ENDS With that photo, Ed Westcott must have wondered what the future held for him. His job assignment was essentially done. With that photograph, Ed had brought to a close the most important work of his professional life. On that night, he finished the most important photographic archive of 20th century American history. On that night, Ed Westcott was 23 years old. As it turned out, Ed stayed in Oak Ridge as a government photographer for another 20 years. In 2017, he was nominated for the Presidential Medal of Freedom, our nation's highest civilian honor. In 2016, the Honor Air Program in Knoxville, which is 25 miles from Oak Ridge, decided to expand their definition of a veteran to include Manhattan Project workers who worked in Oak Ridge. The program flies over 130 veterans each trip to Washington, D.C. to tour the war memorials. This trip is done at no charge to the veterans. They leave in the morning and are back in Knoxville the same evening. It's a long day for all the veterans and the volunteers who make it all possible. In October of 2016, four Oak Oakridgers took the trip. Among them was Ed Westcott. I was not there for the send off, but I was there that evening for their welcome home along with thousands of other people. Warren Buffett, along with Bill Gates, were interviewed by Charlie Rose in 2017. It was a set-up question, but fascinating nonetheless. Charlie asked Warren what he thought was the second most important document in American history. Warren said, of course, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were most important, but Buffett said the second most important document was written by two immigrants to President Roosevelt in 1939. They weren't really immigrants, but rather refugees from Nazi Germany. One, not quite as well known, was Leo Szilard, a brilliant physicist from Hungary. The other letter writer was a refugee from Germany and happened to be the most famous scientist in the world, Albert Einstein. In Buffett's estimation, these two refugees saved the world. The two told Roosevelt that Hitler was working on developing atomic weapons and Germany had a huge head start. If Germany won this arms race, Nazism and Japanese militarism would rule most of the globe. The letter got to the White House in August of 1939. And eight weeks later, the earliest version of the Manhattan Project was created.
0: And a very special thanks to Richard Cook for that remarkable storytelling. And Richard is the author and compiler of Ignored Heroes of World War II, the Manhattan Project Workers of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Oral History with quotes from the workers who were eyewitnesses to one of the most important events of the 20th century. And no doubt, Hitler's regime of hate drove away the very talent that would come into America and kill the German war machine. And by the way, Ed Westcott, on March 29, 2019, passed. He was still taking photographs a week before his death. And you can find his photos by punching in Ed Westcott and the words Oak Ridge into your search engine. There are thousands of pictures out there taken by this one man. A remarkable story. Again, special thanks to Richard Cook and great job on this by Robbie, our Cracker Jack producer here at Our American Stories. The story of a town, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, a photographer, Ed Westcott, here on Our American Stories.